the letter of First Peter. And as you're turning there, let me just pray for us. Lord, we just thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are Emmanuel. You are the God who has made your habitation in your dwelling place with us. That, Lord, you are with us today as we gather, not just because you promised to be here, but because the desire of your heart is to be with your people. That your heart is always fully towards those whose hearts are fully towards you. And so we turn our hearts, we turn our minds, we turn our affection towards you, the King of Heaven. And I pray, Lord, as we spend these moments together, as we read your Scripture, as your truth is proclaimed, Lord, would you anoint these words. May they bear fruit, the fruit that you desire, for your glory. And Lord, I thank you that picture of fruitfulness is always one of us resting not striving but just resting in you allowing you to do through the power of your spirit through your mercy and grace that you pour upon us that which you desire to do may that be the reality this morning a people resting in you but intentionally allowing you to move in our hearts and our lives we pray that Lord Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, for those who may have come in late, we've begun a series. First, uh, First Peter, of course, is a letter written by the Apostle Peter and written with a very clear purpose in mind. He says in chapter 5 that I've written this letter to you, being his readers, being us today, for the simple purpose of exhorting and declaring the true grace. There's many substitutes, but there is one true grace. It is radical, it is powerful, and it is available to us. And Peter writes with that passion. You sense he was a passionate guy. You sense his passion as he writes to talk about this true grace that he himself had experienced. And we talked about the journey of true grace begins in 1 Peter 1, the first two verses where he talks about I'll summarize it this way, what God has done for us. This God who has chosen us. The story begins with his choosing. He then moves in verse 3, which we looked at last time, to talk not about what God has done for us as much as what God has done in us. The new birth. Praise God, he says, who has caused us to be born again has given us life, this picture of the new birth, its life, its identity. And he will continue on. We touched very briefly last week, but if you continue with this unpacking of what God has done in us, he moves and we'll follow very quickly to get to where we need to get to this morning. He says, but he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, who by God's power, His very power, is guarding us, is preserving us. He is refining our faith so that it would stand and be of more worth than gold. And then He finishes with saying, He is filling us with joy that is inexpressible. 
find someone and say, that's good. That's good joy. That's good. Are we alive and awake this morning? Are we ready? It's awesome. Thank you. It's good. In fact, it's so good. Verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, this salvation that he has talked about, it's so wild, it's so wonderful, it's so radical. He says that even the angels, even the angelic realm, they look on in wonder. They look on in awe, they look on in amazement at this revealing of God's grace expressed through his people. It is that good. Now, we could easily camp and we could do a sermon, we're not going to, don't worry, on each of those aspects of salvation. I would encourage you in your own time to have a look at what Peter is saying is the nature and the power and the purpose of this salvation, this work that God has done in us. But in order to gain a little bit of traction in our series, I know we've spent nearly a month and we've only done, done three verses, which is a long series, even... For my standards, I've calculated at that rate, the Lord would certainly return before we finish this letter. So I want to pick up in verse 13. We've had 12 verses, some of the most wonderful verses you'll find anywhere in the New Testament, declaring this true grace, talking about the grace of God expressed in what He's done for us, His incredible grace expressed in what He has done in us. And He'll move now to talk about how that grace is expressed through us. So he changes tact in verse 13, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now we kind of missed the true picture of what Paul's saying in our English translation. He literally is saying, girding up the loins of your mind. The reason that's not in there is it's a, a phrase that's probably unfamiliar. Anyone use that one recently? We might say, roll up your sleeves. We don't talk about girding up loins. But the picture is this, in that day and time, uh, both men and women would wear long flowing gowns. That was the fashion of the days, thank the Lord, that we've moved on from those times. But in order to run, you needed to gird up your skirt, your dress, whatever it was called, your garment, in preparation for action. That's literally what he's saying, prepare, be ready. So you get the picture already, he's going to Instruct us in something. Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Literally means to be free of any intoxicating influences. Not just talking about alcohol consumption, of course, but having a clear and purposed and intentional mind. Gird up the loins, be sober-minded, and here it is, the first commandment, in the, the letter of First Peter, talking about true grace, what do you think it's going to be? Building the suspense here. I can see it's, it's building very slowly. He says this, the first commandment, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we could camp there for months but let me just make this statement. The first commandment in this letter, talking about true grace, its purpose for us, in us, and through us, is a command to hope. God's command is first, not what you can perform for Him with your strength, but His command is first that you hope in Him. In what He has done for you, and what He has and will continue to do 
in you and to hope in his plan and purpose for what he desires to do through you. And I love this because notice it's a command to hope fully. See, he doesn't say hope somewhat. His concern is that we not be little hopers, half-hearted hopers, not even moderately hopeful hopers. He says hope fully in what? In this grace. This grace that he has begun to talk about and the grace that he will continue to unpack. Hope fully. And you see, hope is such a powerful word because it speaks not only to our present circumstances, but it speaks to the future. He's saying hope. There is a place for your hope and it's in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where is it that you place your hope? Now we've talked about hope. I think the end of last year I preached a sermon on hope. So we're going to move on. And what I really want us to focus on is this next verse. Let's continue. He said, prepare your minds, be sober-minded, be free of anything that would hinder you to fully set your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. And verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed. That word literally means to be molded into something. It's the same word that's in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and he gives us a framework for our holiness, just in case we would misunderstand his intention. And he quotes from the Old Testament, the Lord himself saying, you shall be holy for I am holy holy so we could summarize it as this very simply to hope fully and to live holy to hope fully and to live holy and you see this is so important because one of the greatest tragedies that i believe when it comes to teaching on grace we have whole movements often called hyper grace and they go by other names that teach that somehow this grace of god which is so extravagant which is so wonderful, is somehow an excuse for us to sin more, to excuse our sin. And there is a sense, Paul talks about this in Romans, he says, when you encounter the grace of God, Romans 5 into, into Romans chapter 6, he says, if you encounter this grace, this grace that the greater the sin, so much greater is his grace. It's almost like he says we should say, should we go on sinning? Because then grace will abound more. Like it's that good that almost there is that sense that maybe we should just keep sinning and keep sinning because the grace of God, will be, it'll, be, it'll be bigger and brighter and better and more, more wonderful. Lord, bless the kids. We love them. And then Paul goes on, he says, no, be it not so probably exactly the way he said it too be it not so no what a mockery that makes of grace grace is not an invitation to sin more grace is this radical invitation to holiness to not be conformed to the passions of former ignorance is the way peter puts it but to be conformed into the image of him who is holy it's this incredible privilege the higher call of holiness see to be a little bit like 
this is the story of grace, isn't it? That we were there, we were standing guilty, charged with all manner of grievous offenses, and the the charges that stacked up amounted to us being worthy of the death penalty. But someone stepped in to pay the price, the Lord Jesus himself. But not only did he pay the price, not only did he give us his mercy, which is getting not getting what we do deserve, but by grace, he says, not only am I going to forgive you, but my status becomes your status. My wealth, my position of influence, of power and authority, my righteousness becomes your righteousness or your lack of righteousness. Now, what if we were too in that place of experiencing God's grace and it was mercy and then we experience his grace, this incredible gift lavishes his love upon us only to use that position to live according to our old sinful desires. What a mockery that makes of grace. As Paul says, it would be better if that person had never tasted grace in the first place than to have tasted the wonder and the beauty of his grace, only to turn again to a life of sin. So instead, he has called us to a life of holiness. This is an incredible life. And I want to give you three aspects of what this means. What is it that Peter is saying as he talks about true grace, this invitation to live holy, for he is holy. Point number one, Sony three. Holiness is not an invitation to works as much as it is an invitation to wonder. It's an invitation to indescribable wonder. Let me explain what I mean. See, so often we think of holiness as this word, if you were to say, what does a holy person look like? And we think of a certain type of person who wears clothes a certain way, who wears their hair, who does certain things, who doesn't do different sorts of things, and who wears their self-achievements, their list of do's and and don'ts as a a badge of self-righteous pride. The problem is that the holiness that we're called to live has nothing to do with what we do or don't do at all. In fact, the reference point for our holiness is the fact that he is holy. So what is it that defines holiness? Because it's not what he does and doesn't do. It's not even the absence of sin because God was holy before there ever was sin. And God will be holy after sin is once and for all dealt with. He will continue to be, he always has been, he always will be holy. It's not the way he wears his hair. It's not the adornments. There's something else. What is holiness? Holiness is a term that we often use to refer to the undefinable characteristic of God. Much of God we can define in relation to his acts. We can define his love by what he's done. He's displayed his love. We can define his mercy, his justice in relation to his actions. But his holiness is that which sets him apart. He is unlike any created thing. And holiness is not this picture of angry, judgmental, critical people with do's and don'ts. In fact, Psalm 96.9 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. I would suggest to you that there is nothing more beautiful than God than his holiness. 
It's pure beauty, pure, undefiled, untainted, untouched, gloriously wonderful. If you were to see him, I've not seen the Lord. But we read accounts in scriptures of people who, whether they were in the flesh or in the spirit, I don't know. But Isaiah 6 is one example as he stands there in the throne room of heaven. He describes this picture of immense beauty. The throne room of God. The angels are crying out, holy, he's holy. That's all they can do. All they can cry out is holy. He's holy. He is pure beauty, pure majesty. And then, of course, the second sense he has after this sense of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God is his unholiness. He cries, God, I'm undone. I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful man. He goes on, he says, God, and I live in a land of sinful people. They're just as bad as me, if not worse. We're all sinful. We are all incredibly unholy in the presence of your holiness. See, sometimes we lose the sense of his holiness and our unholiness because we begin to think that unholiness is the norm. If we're not moved by our unholiness and the unholiness around us and how holy he is, if that's not our reality, it probably just means we haven't been in his presence. In the presence of him who is holy. See, there is this place of holiness. He is holy. And so you think, well, how on earth are we to be holy like that? Like that's... How do we do that? But that is the invitation that he gives us. He knows that we are unholy. And he said, I've come. And that's why I've given you life. It's new birth. And he's made us holy. He's given us his place of standing, his righteous, righteousness, to give us an invitation, not so much to works, not so much to do's and don'ts, but an invitation to live in this place of holiness, to be conformed to the image of His holiness. Point one. That's point, point two. Holiness is the place that we live from, not the place that we strive for. If you've got your Bibles there, let's look at another passage of Scripture. I just love this passage for a number of reasons, but turn with me to Isaiah Chapter 35, Isaiah 35, Isaiah is seeing this incredible vision of the Lord as he pens it down. And he says this in chapter 35, verse 1, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom, and shall blossom abundantly, rejoicing with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak knees, make firm the feeble, the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. It's just getting better and better. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground, springs of water, the horn of jackals where they lie down, the grasses shall become reed 
reeds and rushes. He's just seeing this incredible picture of the purpose and the plan of God for his people. And most of, most of us, well, all of us, I'm sure, would say, that's incredible. That sounds amazing. How do we get there? Anyone want to know how we get there? How do we get to that place? See, there is a path that leads to his promise and his provision. Well, let's read verse 8. In the midst of this picture, he says, and there's a highway. What's a highway? A highway is a road that takes you somewhere, takes you from one point to another. How do we get there? He says, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall belong. Underline that word there. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. What's Isaiah seeing? He's seeing this incredible picture of the Lord's purpose, of his promise. He says there is a pathway to all that the Lord wants to do, to all that he has for his people, and it's called the highway of holiness. And here's what I love. So what's our role in this picture? Because so often we view the highway of holiness as a road that we have to build. You know, we strive for holiness. It's all about what we need to, we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Here's the problem with that mentality. If we're striving, if you're striving to arrive in holiness, I salute you. I'm not even going to try because remember what the goal is. The goal is to be holy like God. How holy is God? Very holy. Really? Is that what you're trying to strive and work towards? If you want to try and live as holy as God, good luck to you. Let me know how it goes. See, we're not called to build the path to the highway to holiness, build the road. But it says this, it says, it shall belong. The highway's built. He's made a way. It belongs to you. It belongs to the, it's the privilege of the righteous to walk along the path to his promise, the highway of holiness. And I love this next verse. It just gets better. He says, it shall belong to those who walk on the way, comma, same sentence, even if they are fools. We won't ask for a show of hands. Even, who, he's talking about those who belong to the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. What's he saying there? Well, I find this very encouraging. I think he's saying this. He's saying there's a highway of holiness that belongs to you. And if you're walking on it, you couldn't lose your way even if you tried. It's not this little tightrope that you need to worry about. It's, it is a highway. It's the wide open plains of His grace that you can dance upon with joy. The path to His promise, the highway of holiness. I can see that's exciting you. So we've got to get through our minds. This is not something we need to strive and to build but this is a road that we need to walk upon. It's a place we live from, not for. It's the place that we fight from, not fight for. See, I had this moment with the Lord, probably would have been two years ago, maybe 18 months. And I happened to be in Sydney. I was in this time of worship at a, a particular conference up there. And it was one of those just incredible moments of the Lord's presence. I mean, we... We regularly just, there's, there's no Sundays that I come here and don't encounter the presence of the Lord in some way. And wasn't this morning, the worship, anyone else? I was just, the power and presence of God is here. He's so gracious. But there's just times, isn't there? There's times where the Lord's presence is particularly powerful 
and I was just enjoying him in this place and sometimes it's nice when you're a pastor to go away to a church where there's there's no expectations there's no one I love all of you coming to see me with all the stuff that's good it's part of the job but sometimes it's nice to just leave the stuff behind and I was just in this place of oh this is wonderful not because of the stuff but because of the Lord's presence just encountering the Lord encountering the Lord just so in awe of his goodness so in awe of his his majesty you know it wasn't wasn't a vision I wasn't in the throne room like Isaiah was seeing the angels it was just this powerful encounter with his presence and this feeling of just his holiness and God I'm like God I I want I, I want this what do I need to do and first of all the Lord said well you don't need to do anything this this is available I'm like, well, how? How how is this? Like, how do I stay here in just this place of your presence? And the Lord said to me, just this prompting on my heart, he said, you have to be willing to protect it. What will you be willing to do to protect this? And you see, there's a big difference between holiness being somehow a list of achievements and steps to get into that place than it is to be in that place and say, Lord, I I just want to spend my life guarding this place, just being in a place of holiness with you. It's the invitation you've given to me. Lord, let there not be anything. David regularly prays in the Psalms. He says, Lord, just even show me the secret things that I don't even know about. Like there's some sins that I know about that and I'm, I'm dealing with that, but God, I don't want there to be anything in my life, even those things that I'm not even aware of, anything that would keep me from your presence because I want to be in that place. So we're not striving for holiness, but we're doing everything we can to live from that place of holiness. And one thing that, that grieves me, I think, probably more than anything, and I'm not saying this about this church, but the church worldwide, you know, there seems to be, there was a time where the church was marked by radical holiness. Whereas now I think we're so marked by relevance. We want, to be so, we want to be so like the world that there is very little difference in worldly living outside of the church and Christians living inside the church. It's like the, the motto, the, the modus operandus has become how worldly can we be and still be Christians? We want to be so conformed to the image of the world that we're so relevant because people don't notice any difference. I'm not saying that relevance with the world is not important. Hear what I'm saying here. But you see, there has to be a passion for holiness. Every piece of research I've seen where they go and they interview Christian churches and they interview secular people, you know, the church is normally as bad or worse as people in the world. We've missed something in this area of radical holiness. The mission is not to become as worldly as we can and still be the church. The mission is to become as holy as we can and still be human. You see, notice the call to holiness. There's no upper limit. The invitation is, be holy for he is holy. It doesn't say be holy as he is holy, but only up to a certain limit. You know, if you hit 1%, you're doing well. Aim for 10 doing better if you can get just 20 percent of the whole it's it's not there's no upper limit it says to be holy in the same way that he is holy what if that became our mission rather than just a list of do's and do notes radical holiness that says how holy can we be 
and still be human. I think of Enoch. Maybe that's what happened to him. He had his passion for holiness. He's walking with God. And then all of a sudden, one minute, it says the Lord took him. He was walking and he was not. Maybe he just had his passion for holiness. He's like, I'm going to be as holy as I can and still be human. And he crossed the line and went, oh, there is a limit. <laughs> There's a limit where I cease to be human because I'm so conformed into his image. I'm so much like him that I just cease to... I mean, what if, what if that was our mission? If that was our mandate? Radical holiness. Living in this place that belongs to us. He says it belongs to you. It is the highway of holiness. It is yours. Come and dance upon it. Come and delight in it. It's not works and striving. It's the beauty of who he is. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more wonderful than his holiness. We'll move along. Here's the third point. It'll be quick, but I want to talk about this a little bit. So we've talked about the reality that this is an invitation, that this is a place that we live from. And point number three, when I can find it, holiness is continually choosing Him. That's the way I'll phrase it. Holiness is continually choosing Him. Back to First Peter. You see here there is a choice implied. He says here, be prepared, be sober-minded, be clear about who you are and what you're going to do, and do not be conformed to the passions of ignorance. But do be holy. See, there is a choice and there continues to be a choice. He's saying, what will you choose? The passions of ignorance or the passions of pursuing an eternal holy God? And part of me in this picture says, well, why would God even give us a choice? Like, wouldn't it have been easier? We talked about the new birth. If he says, I'm going to give you life and I'm going to give you an identity and I'm just going to remove any passions or desires you have for anything other than me wouldn't that be simpler see the reality is we see throughout scripture this god who wants to be a god who is radically chosen not in the absence of temptation but in the midst of temptation that we would choose him you see this in the garden of eden he creates adam and eve he puts them in perfection his very presence meeting with them the cool of the evening, the Lord himself would walk and commune with Adam. This picture of incredible perfection. And yet in the midst of that, it says he created a tree, the tree of good and evil. And we know, of course, that he had to. He had to give them a choice, didn't he? Because he wanted people not to serve him, but to love him. And love requires freedom. But why didn't he take this tree then and say, all right, well, I need to give them free choice, but I'm going to hide it away. The tree's in the garden, guys, but it's over the hill and it's down, it's around the valley, it's hidden away. You've got to work really hard to find it. That's what it says. If you read the account in Genesis, it says that tree was placed in the midst of the garden. Every single day they walked past this tree. And you say, all right, well, he placed it in the middle of the garden, but why didn't he place it there and make it really unappealing? You know, like dried up figs and smelly fruit that they'd look at and they'd think, well, you know, I could eat it, but it's horribly undesirable. But he didn't do that either. He says he put this tree in the middle of the garden and he made it pleasurable to the eye. Pleasing to the eye. It says Eve saw the fruit that it was pleasing and she took it. Why did he do that? Because he wants to be a God who is freely chosen out of love 
in the midst of temptation. And all the enemy ever does is he says to us, he says, you know, there's the glory of God on offer, but hey, you could have this, this, this piece of fruit here, this, this little temptation. You know, this could actually offer you something that the immense majesty and holiness of God couldn't. And us in our human brains, we say, ah, yeah, we fall for it again, don't we? Just like Adam, we're like, yes, oh, yeah, I think you're right. And how well, does it go, how well did it go for Adam and Eve? And it continues to be a disaster. Quickly turn with me to one more passage. Another example, Jeremiah 2, 13. The Lord had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. He told them that he desired to make them his people, his pleasure, his portion. He'd offered them everything. In fact, in, in chapter 4, he, if, if you read on the story, he says there, you know, what? I, I would have set you as my sons. I would have given you all these things. You would have called me father. But he has this moment in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. And he says, but you're a people who have forsaken me. How did they forsake him? It says, the fountain, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. He's saying, I am the fountain of living waters, the never-ending fountain, the fountain that will satisfy. I'm the God who's promised to provide and protect, to give you this place to provision and purpose and promise. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for yourselves. Instead of drinking from the fountain of living water, they instead made, from their own effort, hewn out from their own hands, cisterns. Now, cisterns, every time I read that, it brings up images of a toilet. Anyone else like that? A toilet cistern? That's what he's saying. He's saying there's living water on offer and you're drinking from the toilet. And not only is it a toilet, it's broken. He said, your systems are not working. You can see his heart. You can see his passion. He's saying, what is going on? Here I am, the God of glory. I'm offering you everything. And there you are drinking from your system. You're in denial. Well, you know, mine's it's a pretty system. It's a dual flush padded seat. Now look at what's on offer. I mean, it's, it's okay. Are you kidding me? We read last week about how the angels look on in wonder about this gift of salvation that God gives us. I think what amazes them even more is that there we are as the people who've been offered salvation and instead we're hewing out systems for ourselves. They're thinking, what are they thinking? What is going, there's living water and they're drinking from the toilet again. The problem is there's something appealing about it. Something appealing about looking here rather than looking to Him. And that's why Peter is saying here, as strongly as he can, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of ignorance. There are passions that are offered as temptations in this world. And holiness is not so much what we choose not to do, but it's what we choose to do. To say, you know what? I'm not choosing the passions of ignorance, the systems of human endeavor. I'm choosing Him. I am choosing Him. I'm choosing what He offers. This Father who stands there with tenderness, offering an invitation, come out and be separate from a world drowning in its mess. Come and be holy as I am holy. I will come to you, I will be 
your father. In the midst of the passions of ignorance, choose holiness. Choose holiness. You see, I'm not just talking, sometimes we have this picture of sin as being the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. I mean, that is, yes. But the word for sin literally means to miss the mark. And I'd always had a sense of missing the mark as I'm aiming for the target and I've just shot a little bit to the left or to the right, just, just not quite hit bullseye. Whereas the word for sin is not so much indicating that you've missed bullseye, but it's that you've aimed at another target entirely. It's anything that would cause us to look away from him and his offer, belonging to this path, the holiness that belongs to us, living in that place, and instead saying, well, I don't really believe God is good enough. I don't believe he's strong enough. I don't believe he's big enough. And so I'm going to turn to my indulgence, to sex, to sin, to pleasure, to food, to whatever it might be. And the enemy, all he does is he just dangles it out. How about this one? I choose him. I choose him. How about this one? And eventually we're like, oh, yeah, that one looks okay. I'll drink from that cistern. It never satisfies. There is a call to radical holiness. Not so much choosing what we don't do as it is choosing Him above every other thing. I choose you. I guard this. I want to live on this path of holiness that you offer to me. See, that is the invitation of true grace. The pathway to His promise and His provision that we'd heed His invitation to wonder and that in the midst of the passions of ignorance, the broken systems of our human effort, that we would choose Him. It's not really a choice anyway. It's the passions of ignorance or it's the holy majesty and the beauty, the wonder of the eternal God. Choose Him. How holy can we be and still be human. Let's find out together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we finished our time of worship this morning just in that wonderful place of surrendering afresh to you. And Lord, I, I can't think of a better place to end our time together than Lord just coming and laying before in wonder with thankfulness all that we are. Lord, I thank you for this incredible grace, for what you've done for us, for what you've done in us, and for what you desire to do through us, which first of all is this call to radical holiness. Lord, I pray that we would be a people not marked by our conforming to the world, but Lord, that we would be a people marked by your beauty, marked by your holiness, that somehow people would see in our pursuit of you and our love for you and our determination to choose you, that they would see the wonder and grace and majesty of our God revealed in us. And I just want to pray, Lord, where there are things in our lives that we know there's moments there's issues, there's stuff. God, I thank you that you're not afraid of our brokenness. 
You know we are but broken people. But Lord, you invite us to come to you, to choose you, to allow you to deal with what you need to deal with. So I just pray, Lord, if there are things, if there's sin, if there's stuff, if there's junk, Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you put your finger on those things? Would there be a passion stirred in our hearts this day to pursue you in radical holiness? May your holiness once again mark us as your people. We pray in Jesus' name.